0: I'm with Cameron Brooks. Thanks for coming back for another edition of Cameron Brooks' podcast, Above and Beyond. And so on this podcast, I interview Abby Horvath. Abby is a former Army Medical Service Corps officer. She was a medevac pilot in the Army, and she transitioned about five years ago into a manufacturing supervisor role at Johnson & Johnson, specifically at the company Janssen. Uh, one of the operating companies within Johnson & Johnson. Abby has had an extremely successful career thus far at J&J. And so on this podcast, essentially, I ask Abby to share with us a little bit about the world of manufacturing, a little bit about uh, specifically pharmaceutical and medical device manufacturing. But I think the thrust of the conversation really gets into how she's been so successful at J&J in such a short amount of time, and in five years, she's been promoted multiple times and just received a promotion to manufacturing manager for one of their most important lines of products, and so just hearing her and how she got to where she's where she's gotten to and how she's gone about her business and getting there, it's just been fantastic, it's really refreshing and great to hear her Work through that. So I think you'll really enjoy the conversation, not only learning more about what someone in manufacturing does, but also how to progress your career, or at least how she's progressed her career and been so successful. The other thing she does right there at the very end of the podcast, she I asked her, hey, what book are you reading right now? And she, she just read a book called Radical Candor and shared with me a little bit about what she's working on professionally and finding the balance or fine line between being empathetic as she leads her team, but also being able to give direct and specific and consistent feedback. So hopefully you'll find some value in that. And maybe if you have a moment, go and and check that book out as well. So really fun conversation with Abby. She's such a uh, energetic and interesting person to talk to. And again, I think you'll find a lot of value in in what we talked about. If you wanna know more about Cameron Brooks and about what we do and how we help military officers transition, From the military to corporate america you can find so much more on our website cameron-brooks.com lots of information that you can grab right now all open source that you can use to begin to learn more about a potential transition from the military to business and then also i'd encourage you to pick up a copy of pcs to corporate america written by roger cameron it's currently in its fourth edition so it's been rewritten and updated three different times but really the book is chocked full of information, practical information that you can use to help you in your transition from the military to business. So thanks for listening. Without further ado, here's Abby. All right. I have Abby on the line with me. Abby, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks, Pete. I'm happy to be here.
0: I'm really excited to chat with you because, you know, you were one of the very first people that I met when I came to Cameron Brooks five years ago. You've since made your transition about five years ago and you know I've been following you we've been we talked a little last year and I've been following following you on LinkedIn but I'm excited to get caught back up and uh and hear how things have been going for you for about the last five years so again thanks for thanks for being with us today
1: absolutely it's good to hear your voice
0: again all right so let's start here what uh tell us a little bit about what you did in the army before you got out of the military
1: So, in the Army, I was a 67 Juliet, which is a medevac helicopter pilot. Um, I went from, I was actually Medical Service Corps when I graduated Mm -hmm. college. So, backing up, I did ROTC at Slippery Rock University and I graduated in 2005. I was assigned to the Medical Service Corps and went to Fort Sam Houston there. Uh, I was Mm -hmm. approved for flight school, so I went on to Fort Rucker and I flew Black Hawk helicopters. I flew both UH and HH-60 Limas. I was stationed at Fort Hood, Texas for the majority of my service with a deployment to Iraq 2008 to 2009 and then a deployment to Afghanistan 2010 to 2011. Um, Mm -hmm. About my tenure, I was the S-1 adjutant, the S-1OIC, between my two deployments, so I had my staff time there. I handled everything from actually flying and landing on the roadsides to um, the soldiers in my platoon or in my company. Afghanistan was the biggest opportunity I had where I was in charge of a remote site in Kunduz, Afghanistan. So here I got the independence to make decisions and be able to kind of drive our op op tempo around the missions. And um, that was kind of the highlight of my service When I returned back to the States, I was in my eighth year, and I went to a division level, and I was in the surgeon's office in operations, and that's Mm -hmm. when I kind of made my decision to transition into civilian sector.
0: Now, you came to a career conference in the middle of 2013. Why did you choose to do that, though, instead of maybe going, you know, you knew how to fly a helicopter, you knew the the roles of uh or you know of medevac and being able to do that kind of work why didn't you go transition into something specific like hey i'm going to go fly the medevac mission
1: right um i love flying i love being in the air but the medical evacuation mission a lot of it is hurry up and wait and it's a catch-22 mission and i appreciate everybody who does it both civilian and military Um, However, there's a lot of stress where you want to fly, but if you're flying, it means somebody is in a life-or-death situation. Um, Mm -hmm. So I would say the op-tempo, I wanted kind of a a life that's a little more stable. When you fly medevac, you're on call. It's very much like ambulance. It's like firefighters and police where you just Mm -hmm. work long shifts, you're on call. And one of my strengths is people leadership which is what I learned in the military and I wanted to apply in the civilian sector. So that the people leadership and tying into um, a business is where I connected with Cameron Brooks.
0: Got it. So when you came to the career conference in 2013, you don't necessarily have to run through every single company, but what kind of, what kind of roles and things were you interviewing for? What kind of things did you see there?
1: So I had a ver- variety of interviews. Some were safety oriented, um, almost like a safety officer, but the civilian version. Um, I interviewed for a lot of manufa- manufacturing manager positions. I interviewed for um, training officer positions. So I had done a lot mm-hmm. of training-related work in the army, and they. There's a lot of training opportunity in the civilian sector as well. So really, safety mm-hmm. training and manufacturing were my top three.
0: So you went to Johnson and Johnson. Tell, tell us a little bit of it. We sh- obviously we shared that in common. We we were chatting before I hit the record button, and uh, and we were so we we have some of that shared experience. Tell me why you chose J and J.
1: There are several key reasons. I would say the first is their credo. Um, They have a belief and value system that uh, really ties in with mine. And the first paragraph talks about customers with the nurses, the doctors, the patients, as well as our employees. Um, So really being able to drive the people side of a business and understanding that your customer and your people are your biggest mission. And then going into the impact with communities, so J&J does a lot with giving back to United Way and March of Dimes. Um, We do uh, walks for cancer awareness, Um, everything, you, you think of it, we do it. We participate with Habitat for Humanity and I love their outreach and just responsibility to their local communities. And then finally, um, the last in their credo is stakeholders. But the belief is if we take care of our patients, employees, and community, then our company is going to do well and our stakeholders will be happy. And so for 150 years they've been successful, and I kind of wanted to be a part of that mission. The second level of that is I interviewed with other companies that were manufacturing for roofing. Um, I went to a couple wineries. I went to... um, There were uh, Mars or food type, food and pet type industries, and it was the medical industry that J&J supplies. So I interviewed specifically for pharmaceuticals, and there's just a part of me that likes the larger mission of how am I impacting the world, how am I making Mm -hmm. an impact on our communities, and to me the pharmaceutical mission of providing medicine to people that need it spoke a, a little bit more of, yes, I could fit that mission.
0: Yeah. You know, the interesting thing about what you're saying, and, and it's really a, a recurring and common theme on this podcast, but one that I think is so important to continue to to focus in on is, you know, you didn't make a decision based necessarily on what you would be doing day to day. You didn't make a decision on, you know, this kind of broad, hey, I'm interested in team leadership. What you... What you just said to me abby was you made a decision based on the culture of the organization but based on what they're focused on based on what they're doing right and and that's the beauty of doing a search the way you did it is i mean you found the company that you were a fit for but you looked through a lot of different companies and some people do like construction material or consumer packaging or the wine industry or whatever all, what all the ones you just listed but the, but the really interesting thing about doing a career search or true career search is having the opportunity to look at all those things to make the decision that's right for you and, and where you see yourself fitting into an organization. Because, because obviously you're not doing the job that you were hired to do five years ago. You've been promoted now multiple times. And so finding the company that you fit with culturally through that process I I can only assume has been one of the things that has led to your success up to this point. Can you speak to that?
1: Absolutely. So I agree. Cameron Brooks, when you go to the conference, one of the first things they tell you before they hand you the job, um, all the worksheets and all the companies that you're going to interview with, is do not make a decision before you read their material and interview with them because you never know where you're going to connect that might even surprise you. So I interviewed with companies that I recognized their name, and that automatically Mm -hmm. made me want to go there. There were other companies Mm -hmm. that I, um, their location was where I wanted to go. And so Mm -hmm. it was easy to want to prioritize, ooh, I like this company. But until you sit in the interview and kind of get that feel of the interviewers, you can already tell their culture just by how the two of them interact and how they interact with you, and you start realizing quickly that there are different missions within the mission, so I I gave roofing and wineries a a really good chance in the sense of my mission wouldn't be the wine, my mission would be the people, you know, helping that Mm -hmm. culture drive changes within the organization where it Mm -hmm. wasn't necessarily about the final product, but it was about the challenge that they had that I could potentially help them solve. So I absolutely think don't put them in an order until you've met with them. You know, prayerfully consider where you want to go, but understand that you're getting your foot in the door with an organization that you want to make an impact on. The location and the pay will come. You just need to Mm -hmm. get in the door with where you want to be a fit. And if you're a fit, you'll be successful. If you try to force it and say I'm going here specifically because of location or I know the name, you, you run the risk of, if that's not your passion, you're going to burn out or, or get bored.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great, great feedback. And and I end up saying that a fair amount and just helping people kind of see the value. But it is great to hear from someone who's, you know, it's not like you came to the conference yesterday. You've been out there working now for a good bit and uh, and being able to hear that and hear how you've been successful along the way. Well, let's start. Let's go back in time again. So you transitioned back in mid 2013. What role did you go into first at J&J?
1: I started as a manufacturing man, uh, a supervisor. I was in charge of five people. I was on a shift. Um, so I rotated day shift and night shift every two weeks. Uh-huh. I, I did that for two years
0: okay and um and so what generally, what were you making? You don't have to go into to the to the deep details, but what were you involved in?
1: So I was hired at a pharmaceutical location, but I actually worked in um medical device building, and medical device okay. is anything that can go inside or outside the body that helps with uh, surgery or an injury. So, we made Surgicel, which is a rayon fabric that we oxidized, and the oxidation process is what allowed that fabric to dissolve safely inside the body. So, it's a giant hemostat that if they go, if it's invasive surgery and they separate organs, sometimes there's internal bleeding, and they can put this hemostat on it to prevent internal bleeding the person back up and not have to go back in later to take it out, and so gotcha. obviously they want to not do more surgeries to undo what they right. did in the first one, so we do the we did the chemical process, and that's why I was on the pharmaceutical site is because it was chemical manufacturing. Mm-hmm. And the chemicals used in oxidation required this location. And so while I worked for Janssen Pharmaceuticals, I was actually in an Ethicon-owned building, both Janssen and Ethicon being Johnson & Johnson facilities.
0: Gotcha. This might be hard to do. I don't know. But just try to to help paint the picture for us. You know, tell us. You know, you walk into a facility where you're making making that product, and there's other things going around around you, going on around you. You mentioned chemical processing of of a of a product in order to in order to be used in surgery and surgical procedures. Like, what's your environment like? What's around you? what What are you you know What are you responsible for doing? Kind of tell us what what it looks like there generally.
1: Sure. So it's really great. I learned so much. But upstairs you have an ISO 14001 location that we had clean rooms that you had to go into an intermediate area and dress out in lab coats and put covers over your shoes, gloves on your hands after you wash them, eye protection, and a hairnet. So you're, whatever you're wearing, and operators and supervisors, we had a uniform that we were given, um, and you dressed out every time that you go back there because it is sanitary, it is material that's used in surgery, and even though we were not the final uh, finished product location, uh, we take that material very seriously where we actually um, scoured it and we beamed it so you you have to wash the fabric and then you put the fabric onto a single roll. It goes into a reactor and uh, in the reactor it'll stay for about 72 hours and that's where the the front room will control it with computer um, controls. And in the back is the hands-on of the fabric. So when you go back and you're actually interacting with the fabric, it's a clean room environment. Then you go Mm -hmm. to the control room, again, where I was just talking about the reactors. And here uh, you're just in your regular uniform, no need to dress out. You're running computers. You manage opening and closing valves. You monitor temperature, pressures, things like that. We even supported some of the quality testing of our products, so we were in and out of a lab there. And then you transition downstairs. And this is kind of what makes me laugh, is upstairs in the clean room, it's almost like a lab facility. The control room was more like an office setting, and then downstairs is more like the mechanics setting. So this is where all of the raw machinery was. This is where it's loud. This is where there's boilers and chillers and quench tanks, and you have to go down and the best example I can give is kind of like changing the oil, so you'll get greasy downstairs, you get dirty it's hot you know it's um, you're you're sweeping the floors and you're handling the tanks and you're quenching and you're testing water and you're doing steam and water samples so it was it was almost like you could get multiple locations in this one building, and we interacted with all of it.
0: Now, how much are you you know you're leading a team? Are you pushing a broom? Are they asking you to do some of that work downstairs in that environment as well? I mean, I know you're willing to, but tell me tell me about what you're responsible for doing as a team leader and as a as a manufacturing supervisor
1: sure, so in that building, supervisors are what we call working supervisors, and it's really up to that supervisor how involved they want to get. As far as job description, there's a certain amount of hands-on that you have to do. Uh, For me, I'm a very hands-on kind of person. I think you do better as a team and you learn more when you're hands-on. So I actually got signed off on the variety of tasks. I was able to scour the fabric. I actually did the driver and partial positions. I went downstairs and actually quenched tanks. And for me, it was more – I went from managing a division, right, so I had – um, hundreds of soldiers to five operators and right. one building. So my scope decreased significantly in my transition, and I I used the time to learn the process. I used the time to, say, teach me what I don't know, and I found learning it and the hands-on portion exciting. Um, yeah. For the most part, Johnson & Johnson is very hands-on and everybody helps with the team, but you, it's just there's – there are some misconceptions in the sense that um, it's a lot like the military. <laughs> we – the operators can often be seen as the NCOs and the enlisted, and the supervisors are often the officers that are attending the meetings and the briefs and have to report on statuses. So it's it's really not that different at all from military life.
0: Gotcha. Um one of, the, one of the misconceptions about manufacturing leadership and transitioning into a manufacturing role is, you know, hey, it's, you know, it's very mundane. Everything's the same day after day. I don't see any new problems. You know, I, I want to be challenged, et cetera. Can you, can you speak to that a little bit? Because I think people misread what that environment and what that day-to-day actually looks like.
1: Sure. So when I started with the five people I was thinking you know wow I'm it's it's five people and um I'm going to kind of roll this up it'll be really easy and I underestimated exactly all the the va- variables that go into their job so there's a higher level of quality especially in pharmaceutical manufacturing because quality is at the forefront of everything we do and if you don't deliver a quality product again you have that people can die you know um it is that severe if you're if you're not careful so learning quality um being on top of the actual production is what the officers will be able to do easily the challenge being now you're managing the maintenance. Again, um, there's planned and unplanned maintenance just like the military. However, now you have a little bit more involvement. You're actually managing the production around that maintenance and there's a lot that comes up daily that says here's your day fire, go fight this while you manage all of the other things that you're doing. and When you're actually running the process, you also have those variables where you're making decisions and then you have to find the time to manage your team. So. Mm -hmm. Uh, The only other thing that I would add to that is, like I said, I was there for two years, and about my one-year mark, where learning the fires and getting into a routine was happening, I started to seek out more challenges. And this is where I think officers need to continue challenging themselves and not just taking status quo, not just saying, this is my job task, this is all I'm going to do. When I was ready for more, I ended up taking on scheduling for my whole building, so I actually worked with planning and ops, and I was scheduling all four shifts as far as what production to do, and I was able to standardize processes that they still use now. Um, From there, I took on inventory. So we had inventory challenges where product that we had made that was not going to get sold was taking up a shelf, and it was not getting destroyed properly, meaning we just didn't destroy it. We just kept storing it and storing it because the process was cumbersome. So I learned what process was required to correctly get rid of that material that was just taking up space. So I kind of just took on extra projects that showed my cycle of success and allowed me to progress out of shift work.
0: So that's an interesting concept, you know. You you said it, it, about it about a year into it, which you know maybe it took about that long, right? I mean, your new company, new industry, new people, new processes, new facility. I mean, practically new everything. And so, in order to get really good, like we do in the military, it takes a you know maybe about a year or so. But but the hard thing I think JMOs have in in transitioning is you know when you're a year in. And you kind of show up to work like well, I'm still here doing my thing. No one's really telling me what to do anymore. No one's really looking at me to be promoted. It's like it's like people get itchy and antsy. But instead of doing that, what you said is, okay, well let me let me figure it. you took the initiative to let's say, let me figure out what else I can do to bring value to the organization in terms of scheduling and inventory control and all the things you were doing. And I feel like, and I want you to kind of continue the thought here, but it sounds like and it feels like you were doing the things that at that point demonstrated not only do you have mastery of leading this team of people in a a production environment where high quality and results matter, but you can take on other things. And that feels like that was the thing that helped you propel to the next promotion. Is that right? Is that how that played out for you?
1: Yeah, that's part of it. So there's twofold. The first is showing your scope, like you mentioned, is, you know, you can come in and do a great job with a team of five or ten and just um, show that you can handle the team. But they've got other people who can handle the team and know the process, too. So what's going to set you apart is how you bring that value to the company. And when I showed up, I received a message that was very blunt, expect three to five years in this position. Don't get your hopes up for a one to two year move because we just don't have the positions on site. And so if you wanna move, you're gonna have to move off site. You're gonna have to find a new location and you can apply, but otherwise expect three to five years. And the other thing that I did to set myself apart besides being scope and bringing value to the company so that you've got your shift that you have to make a difference, you've got your building or your department that you bring a, a difference, you've got your site that you bring a difference, and then you've probably got a company, meaning it could be global, it could be national. So at some point, you need to interject yourself into those different levels of impact, and I mentioned that we do a lot with community and for our employees. Johnson & Johnson has employee resource groups, and women's leadership is one, as well as veterans' leadership. And so I got involved in both. And within a year, I was the president of our Women's Leadership Initiative. And wow. I rearranged the whole um, kind of setup of how they uh, directed their people. And what had happened was the president of the WI was just trying to um, cover too much, and they got, they got worn down because they weren't able to delegate what tasks to do, and they were trying to do them all. And so I said, Well, I'm not, I don't have that time because I'm on shift work. And again, when you're on shift work, getting involved in those other tasks is really hard to do because I had to come in basically on my off days in order to do the women's leadership functions. But what I did at the end of the year was I rolled up that 15 women took on projects that I did not have to lead. I delegated down and I uh, supported. I taught them how to lead. I gave them examples. Some of them knew. Some of them had never left their lab equipment before. So it was their first time in front of a group. Um, Mm -hmm. So they took their events and they ran with it and they were very successful. And I wrote up an end of the year slideshow. I sent it out to the staff to say, hey, senior leaders, this is what the women across your site are taking care of. And it just kind of blew the roof off as far as we did a lot. I think we did 15 events in my first year, and these are full-on events, so that's more than one a month. And I was able to do that while on shift work, which just kind of really brought me to the forefront of, okay, we have someone who's willing to make changes without asking permission.
0: Right, right, right. Let me let me ask this. I I, w- I want to keep going down this down this path, but I gotta ask you, you. You mentioned shift work, getting out of shift work. What's the advantage of being on a shift or doing, let's say, an off shift? Or is there any advantage to an off shift?
1: There is an advantage, but there's also a lot of hardships with that. So the advantage yeah. of it is you get to see how people perform where if you left the military and just went to a day shift nine to five, you most likely would not see this. Because even if you walk in and you visit night shift, they may see you coming and, and behave while you're there. And I take that lightly. What I mean is that they may behave differently while you're there. When you're on night shift with a, a shift for two years, um, you can't fake it that long. So you start learning kind of what the ticks are. You learn... Um, the hardships. You learn that it's really, I mean, we shifted every two weeks, days, two weeks, nights, 12 hours, and it just messed with your body. So when I did move off of shift work, um, I was able to relate better. I was able to say, I understand. When I came in on Fridays, I didn't say, happy Friday, have a great weekend. I would say, wow, man, you guys are just starting your weekend, aren't you? So it was just a different perspective, understanding that um, they were just starting their Friday, Saturday, Sunday rotation, and I was about to go home at 5. So when you have leaders coming in and saying, have a great weekend, totally clueless that you're about to not get a weekend, um, it really degrades team morale. So the mm-hmm. understanding is huge. Also on shift work, what I got that was nice was um, it was two, three, two, so I got every other weekend off, and I was able to get weekends, days off. And when you get weekdays off, you're able to do um, doctor appointments, dentist. I mean, I know it sounds small, but when all you have (laughs) is weekends, you have to take that time as vacation or personal time. So... It was kind of nice to be able to take care of what I needed to, um, and nobody knew and nobody cared. And You know, that's right. one of the big differences of the military is I didn't have to fill out a leave form. I didn't have to do mm-hmm. um, a paperwork on my car functioning. I didn't have to request, hey, can I drive up into the mountains for the weekend. I did my business. They did theirs. We all showed back up on Monday. So right. that was pretty neat. Um, Some of the downsides, though, besides the the regulation of your body on shift work, I mean, sometimes you can just do second or third shift. Um, What was I going to say? If you want to get involved with the company, you do sometimes have to come in on your off days, and that's really hard on the family. That's really hard Mm -hmm. on your personal life. And then I'm very active in church, and it hurt working every other weekend and then Mm -hmm. nights every other weekend meant that one weekend a month I was getting to church. And that's really what wore down on me um, at the end Mm -hmm. of my two years when I said, I'm ready for what's next, um, was I just needed a group that I could be a part of. And with Shift Work 232, you're only able to attend a group maybe two weeks out of the month. And that Mm -hmm. can be really hard when you've moved into a new area and you can't set up a regular rhythm to meet up with people.
0: What I would say is, there, you know, every company—not every company, but companies do—if it is a shift-oriented role where you're, you know, doing 24-hour ops, and of course, working at the facility you worked at, you had to do 24-hour ops because of, you know, you were making a product that was one in high demand, but two, um, used all over the world, and so there was just probably not a whole heck of a lot of time to slow that down. I will say though, when I when I hear you describe that, although it was a sacrifice, there's no doubt about it. It seems like the sacrifice you made and the, and the above and beyond that you went um have really propelled you into kind of in where you are now certainly but even even the promotion you took outside of that role so maybe you can speak to that a little bit where did you where did you get promoted to now did you have to relocate did you stay at the same facility at the time what, what was the next role like for you
1: Sure. So the next role, they saw my impact on my shift, they saw the impact on the building, and they saw the impact on the site with WLI, the women's leadership. So they promoted me to Johnson & Johnson production system. We call it JJPS. And it's the Johnson & Johnson's version of Toyota Lean. So it's around managing processes. Um, it mixes Six Sigma with Lean, Green Belt, Yellow Belt, Um, It mixes really all the tools, including ME2 and just OEE, you know, different processes around manufacturing that streamline the process. And so as a pull forward, I was traveling every week. They flew me up to Pennsylvania. I flew up on Sundays. I flew home Thursday nights. I had Friday, Saturday to work and get ready to go back on Sunday. And I did that for six months. And what was really great about this was now I was impacting a biologics site. So again, pharmaceuticals, but biologics is more injections. And so I was able to learn a whole new kind of section of the business and meet new people. And now I was expanding my network outside of Georgia. So I was able to Mm -hmm. see new sites and new locations. From there, I was in charge of the manufacturing work stream on site, so I was able to make a financial impact to the business. And they saw quickly um, I was able to kind of demonstrate my leadership and demonstrate how I could see the bigger picture. And so after the report out, they ended up promoting me to the site lead. And now I was responsible for manufacturing, quality, and performance management. Here they gave me global experience. And this is what I think a lot of officers will really like and what they seek is um, how do you how do you really get invested in global? And so Johnson & Johnson is an international organization. And within the small molecule sector, we have plants in Georgia, uh, Schaffhausen, Switzerland, Giel, Belgium, and then Cork, Ireland. So in my time as the site lead my general manager was able to connect me with those other three sites and put me in, put me as part of a team that was international for small molecule. So I actually got to travel to Ireland twice, and I've traveled to giel once. And that's all company paid for, the travel, the trip, um, business class, but mainly the networking and the ability to make that international impact. And now I've kind of transcended from... A shift in a small site in Athens, Georgia, to now the small molecule platform generally knows who Abby is. Does that make sense?
0: Right. Yeah, of course. And so, it's just such a great story because I feel like you you made this transition to a new industry, um, new product, new function. I mean, again, new everything, and you you did the hard work required to set yourself apart. Not not only as a not as a military officer. I mean, although I think you do have to do that, but but not only as a military officer, but from all the peers that you worked with. You you took your military officer leadership experience and made it happen such that now you're at this point in your career, I know we've got a couple more steps to go here, or at least another step to go, but now you're, you know, the J J P S site lead for all you know, for your location and international exposure. It's just amazing that in four, I guess at the time, four short years or three and a half short years, you've moved from leading a team of people in a production environment all the way to the site lead, Um, and it's just a testament to certainly your experience and your expertise, but also like your JMO JMO experience and what you bring to the table from a leadership perspective. Can you tell us what you do? I didn't quite catch it. What do you do as as a JJPS site lead?
1: So I managed uh, a variety of projects. I think we had 12 projects. I was more of a project manager. So okay. I had project leads, who the leads were in manufacturing quality functions, and they each had a project. So I managed all of the projects, well, at least all the leads, to manage their projects. And so it resulted in $1.93 million saved in about a year um, from these projects that it provides a system, a process that Mm -hmm. is so uh, succinct, meaning these projects had already been ideas in J&J or we had talked about it or we had started them, and for whatever reason they couldn't get finished. And so the savings and these great ideas for our business were being lost over time and we were losing Mm -hmm. the effort going into them. So JJPS provides a process that brings the visibility to those projects and says, here is our 12-week plan. It's very specific. It's very laid out. And we hold people accountable through that process so that all those projects end on the exact same day. We track the savings. We track the benefits so that we ensure that they're sustainable and it's not just a green belt or yellow belt that somebody does and then moves on to their next position. And so I managed that overall process. I managed change management. I managed the site awareness of what was going on, the visibility of the projects. And then I also mentored the individual project leads on how to manage their change management within their projects.
0: Now, I got to get you to toot your own horn a little bit so you can help me understand. I I think it's just because I don't quite get it. I mean, I understand what you just said. I mean, that just feels like a gargantuan job, a huge job in a relatively short amount of time at J&J, Abby. I mean, you tell me, but but that seems like a major job with some significant um, initiatives for process leadership in a relatively short amount of time. Is that right,
1: yeah, I would say I agree, um, I think my leadership agrees <laughs> um right. because it's um JJPS is rolling across the whole company, so there's also a lot uh-huh. of other people doing it, and we have a support system. but I think my success is the people leadership. It's not the process itself, the process itself mm-hmm. is great, but it's it's back to can you interact with people across functions? can you interact with people at different levels? So you've got people who are senior managers with three years. You have people who are operators with 35 years and you have operators with three years and senior leaders with 35 years. So you have to be able to manage high, you know, high amount of time in the company with high experience and Mm -hmm. the opposite and, and be able to maneuver the variety Mm -hmm. of personalities in the organization. So, I always say that it just comes down to the people, and if you can connect with people, and if you have a vision, if you can see the big picture and not get tied into the individual fires every day, eventually you stand out as that person remains calm, that person sees a bigger picture, and we want them handling X project.
0: Right. Sounds a lot like the military, at least to a degree, handling you know from senior-level officers all the way down to – your junior level in this case army private Um, and so maybe some of that experience from way back when has has helped you be successful or has at least created the foundation to help you grow into the role that you're in now and so hopefully when officers are hearing this and listening to your experience they can start to see some of their experiences and how they could relate into what you're saying what's your thoughts on that
1: Absolutely. I I think that a process is a process, and that's why I could have been effective at a winery and I could have been effective in a roofing company, Um, is you learn their process. Uh, My only advice is stay humble. Um, Yes. You you don't get successful because you're amazing. You don't get successful because you walk (laughs) in there and say, I'm pretty awesome, you need me. They will tune you out so fast. So it's not just humble, and I like this definition, humble is not thinking of your se- thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. And so bringing a certain humility of I don't know what I don't know, walking into a new organization where you're used to military strictness and standards and saying, teach me. And, again, those operators who may be like privates um, or uh, – NCO, Sergeant First Class, go up and ask them what they know. Ask them to show you what they do and and remember them when you move up and on. Because mm-hmm. just my couple walkthroughs as I went through JJPS and even now at Cornelia, I'm still able to drive the hour back to say hi. And it goes such a long way for loyalty and word of mouth does go. And if you're full of yourself, they're they're gonna want less of you. But if you are appreciative and grateful, um and just you do a good job, but you don't have to ring your own bell. Others will ring it for you, and it will go a lot farther.
0: Great. I'm sitting here taking notes as we chat. <laughs>
1: um,
0: <laughs> all right, fi- fi- final thing, or maybe the final thing. Let's see where it goes. Um, so you've uh, you've taken on a new role, or you're about to take a, you. We we have been you know we were communicating last year and you were you were sharing with me that hey I might have the opportunity to get promoted now it's been a few months down the road you have accepted a new position and I don't think you've started yet have you or you're about to start?
1: No, I start officially on Tuesday. Um, I'm unofficially starting where I'm getting out on the floor and saying hi to everybody. I have started my one-on-ones, so I've started meeting my direct reports. Um, and getting into the process a little bit. But I officially start next week.
0: Gotcha. So tell us tell us what role you're going into and what you'll be accountable to and responsible for.
1: So I am the new manufacturing manager for absorbable sutures, the downstream process. And this is going to be a lot of words that probably most people don't recognize, but I'll be responsible for Vicrol and Vicrol Plus from Hocobra Braid, to preprocessing, coating, fusion, and bulk cut strands, um, as well as monofilament and preprocessing. Basically all of the downstream through this process, we make stitches or sutures, and we do it all the way through the final product that goes out the door. And so I will be responsible for safety, quality, customer service, cost, and the credo. And um, we have, you know, a huge team. I have about 200 people now. I have five direct reports who are facilitators. (laughs) You'll like this, Pete. Uh, Two of my five direct reports are actually Cameron Brooks graduates. So I have have a Marine and an Army guy under me who are both, I mean, anybody I meet that's from Cameron Brooks, I automatically kind of hold them in a higher regard because I know what they went through to get here. And so um, having them on the team, that means that three out of six of us are Cameron Brooks, which is pretty, wow. pretty neat. Wow, funny. Yeah. And ha-
0: what, that's, I mean, total total coincidence, right? I mean, that Absolutely. you wouldn't have expected that.
1: No, Johnson & Johnson loves the um, JMO, the junior military sure. officers. We actually have sure. a lot in Johnson & Johnson I've met a lot, and they tend sure. to rise to the top as far as I've met a lot. Mm when I travel too, I met one in, in Pennsylvania and, um, you just kind of stick out because the JMOs are getting the opportunities or they're taking the opportunities or both.
0: Right. Like, um, well, like what you did, maybe you did a little bit of both, but you took a lot of opportunity early. You took initiative. I can hear that loud and clear. Sorry. I cut your train of thought off. Keep going.
1: Yeah, you're good. So I just, I think that there's a certain caliber that, uh, of leader that, The civilian sector is hungry for. So they have engineers and they have people who know the processes and the technical aspects. They hire co-ops direct out of college. They just do not have that level of situational maturity, situational awareness, and being able to step back from a problem, successfully assess it, and then lead their team through it. So they need those people who have that kind of ability to stand back and problem solve and then the the personal drive and any Cameron Brooks candidate um, really graduate has that drive to be successful because you push yourself through the interview process which is very grueling and very rewarding so there's a hunger out here for what we have to offer.
0: So neat I'm so excited for you and Maybe we catch up again in uh you know, a few months down the road to see how things are going and would be very interested to hear a little bit about that. Let me ask you one more question, then I and then I'll let you go get back to your day. I uh I know you're big into professional development, so tell us tell us what you're reading right now or maybe a book that you've read recently that you feel like a JMO would would uh would appreciate and find some value in.
1: So I recommend um, Radical Candor by Kim Scott, Um, and I just, I really like this book. And the reason why is it talks about feedback, and it kind of clarifies, she puts a graph out, and on the x-axis it talks about challenging your people, where there are leaders who don't challenge at all, and leaders who challenge so much that they're seen as aggressive, And then on the y-axis, you have care personally, meaning I really care about my people. I I know that they have three grandkids, and I know that one is in the hospital. And so you're very Mm -hmm. nurturing, but then you never challenge them. And so Mm -hmm. she actually has four quadrants on this chart, and it's where empathy is to the extreme, and you're not actually helping them be a better employee or even professional. Um, If you don't care personally and you don't push them, you don't challenge them, then it becomes almost manipulation to get them to do what you need them to do. Um, If you challenge but you're not empathetic at all, then you become Mm -hmm. aggressive. And then the radical candor is in that ideal you care personally but you can still challenge them. So it's really trying to drive effective teams Um, through finding just the right balance of caring personally and challenging professionally. And so I just, I think it reads really easily, really well, and this is just Mm -hmm. something that I struggle with because no matter how much I do with paperwork and I have had these conversations, I do feel like I've grown in this area, but I have a long way to go to get that radical candor where I can give a direct you can do better without being stinging or without being callous, um, right. and just finding that balance of feedback to help people want to get better, and not feel like I'm I'm just not telling them until it's too late. It
0: is such a balance too, right? Because um, you know you, you you can you can do as well as you can do in terms of being nurturing, but also providing direct feedback, getting to that radical candor. And that's interesting. I hadn't heard of the book, so I have to go look that up. Uh, but I think the other piece of it is, you know, there's someone on the other end receiving the feedback or the empathy that has to respond well. And so maybe maybe the answer lies in be having a balance to a, to really provide them a pathway to respond well to that where they don't expect this, you know, they don't expect to be, you know, let you use the word stinging, stinging critique or, or feedback versus at the same time being a little too nurturing, which I, you know, I appreciate you being Transparent about that and sharing with us what you're working on, you know, professionally. I think that's important because sometimes in the military, uh, officers as they're describing what they're working on have a hard time getting there. And so, to hear someone who's made the transition and obviously extremely successful at Johnson and Johnson say, "Hey, here's here's what I'm struggling with and what I want to get better at," uh, it's refreshing and uh, and it's interesting. I appreciate you uh, appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. Okay, well, that's it, Abby. This has been a great call. I think, that, uh, I think that just hearing your experience and really hearing your toughness and grit, frankly, I think that's the thing I'm taking away from taking away your attitude, your leadership, your desire to contribute. I think all of those things will be motivating and encouraging to those who hear the podcast. So I'm really excited to continue to watch you grow in your great company and look forward to our, our future dialogues.
1: Wonderful. Thanks for your time, Pete.
0: Thank you.